Today's episode is largely a timeline. In this part two of the story that we began in episode four, we will trace the rise of the globally unparalleled and technologically dominating industrial commons of the United States, as well as pinpoint the decisions by governments and businesses that led to the erosion of the American industrial commons today. Welcome back. This book club podcast is for teams tackling issues of both human capital and financial capital. Today, in the wake of mass automation, not only of factory and retail jobs, but white collar work too. I'm Esther Tang, an avid reader and manufacturer of turbochargers. If you're like me, and you know we can do better to prepare people displaced by automation, e-commerce, and other tech innovations, then please tune into this episode, and when you get a chance, reach out with your thoughts and experiences. Question. What makes a healthy industrial commons? That is, what makes a thriving business ecosystem? According to professors Gary Passaro and Willie Shiet, the two Harvard Business School researchers who co-authored the book titled Producing Prosperity, there are three driving forces, government policy, corporate strategy, and exogenous circumstances. For government policy, we are referring to national funding of research. For corporate strategy, we are referring to management's executive decisions on cash flow use, be it funding innovation or paying out dividends and boosting share price. For exogenous circumstances, we are referring to factors greatly outside of one's control, such as natural disasters, war, and pandemics like the bubonic plague. The mix of these three forces, the interplay between them, make all the difference for a thriving or dying industrial commons. Humor me for a second and imagine you're training for a big upcoming world arm wrestling championship. As the athlete, you've been doing your part to prepare. Eating right, working out, sleeping enough. You also have an excellent arm wrestling coach named Coach Grip. During your workouts, Coach Grip looks for signs of weakness and constantly thinks of ways to support your life goal to win the upcoming tournament. Coach Grip and you are simpatico. You get each other. You trust Coach Grip's sports advice. And more so, you trust Coach Grip as a person. Now, arm wrestling is hard on the joints and ligaments, Fortunately for you, your city has the best ligament doctors, excellent physical therapy, x-ray technicians, and tissue scientists up the wazoo. Gumby himself lives here. This metaphorical scenario I described represents the United States economy for nearly 200 years, from the early 1800s right up to the 1990s. Coach Grip symbolizes government policy. You, the arm wrestler, are industry, and your city, this town chock full of ligament nerds, 
symbolizes the exogenous circumstance. Now, let's look at actual historical events. To the benefit of industry in the late 1800s, the U.S. government enacted the Pacific Railroad Act, which not only increased the accessible marketplace for industry, but also enabled a leap in communication technology as telegraph cable was installed alongside the new railroad tracks. The Morrill Act, that's M-O-R-R-I-L, Morrill Act, was also legislated, which created schools in each state. And what was special about these schools is that by law, they had to teach practical topics like agricultural life sciences. This was a change of educational policy direction because in those days, universities focused on teaching unpractical subjects, impractical subjects like Latin, you know, the language used by clergy and ancient Romans. So schools such as MIT, Yale, and Columbia, they established engineering curricula. Also during the late 1800s and early 1900s, the American court system ruled for a strict interpretation of the Sherman Antitrust Act, which provided intellectual property protection. This protection incentivized the American business world to open their own in-house research labs where they could innovate and make money off their proprietary creations. R&D, that is research and development, became a competitive advantage for businesses. I point out that these labs were in-house because what had previously been more common were outsourced labs like Thomas Edison's lab. With the Sherman Act clearly defined by the courts, businesses could see the writing on the wall. Government policy had created a legally protected environment in which a giant and growing marketplace was ripe for entry by companies clever enough to identify opportunities and create secret sauce to ensure that their hard work would result in a payday. A hundred years after the Pacific Railroad Act in the mid-1900s, the U.S. government enacted something else great, the National Highway Act. Private enterprise became further motivated to establish large-scale distribution channels. During this time, companies invested even more heavily in R&D, as well as technology related to manufacturing and, of course, distribution networks. In parallel, the second industrial revolution had arrived. But keep in mind, harnessing electrical power was capital and people-intensive, it was costly, not a lot of room for error or fat to cut. Instead of using earlier business models, which were owner-operated, that is, the owner might be the de facto CEO and he also wore five other hats in the company, Professor Alfred Chandler popularized the modern American capitalist corporation. Professor Chandler published on administration structure, managerial coordination, and business strategy. Businesses with multi-locations connected by railroad 
could be managed successfully. To cap it all off, right before World War II, American universities started to emphasize the applied sciences. Going beyond general engineering, one applied science that developed at this time was aeronautical engineering. Throughout World War II, understandably, the sentiment towards scientists and engineers nationwide inched ever upwards. Scientists, academics, and engineers were seen as cool. Hand-in-hand, side-by-side with their radars, computers, antibiotics, and the atomic bomb, these men and women in the applied sciences helped government help the country to win the war. About a year before World War II ended, then-President FDR asked the Office of Scientific Research and Development to advise on the role of science during peacetime. The department responded by publishing a report titled The Endless Frontier. It argued that the R&D capabilities built up during the war should be maintained, and the federal government should continue to fund basic research. The report's recommendations motivated Congress to increase federal funding for both basic and applied science. This is when we saw the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health come to be. This is when they were born. And thanks to the GI Bill, the many Americans with college degrees increased the population of engineers, who in turn had a smooth time finding jobs in universities, governments, and industry. The stars aligned. Massive research funding, science-based innovation, mass production, modern corporate management, and mass distribution into a giant contiguous marketplace. Huge feats for mankind were created, including intercontinental ballistic missiles, integrated circuits, satellite electric power supply, and the hot section of commercial engines, which we continue to see today on 737s. So how were the industrial commons outside of the U.S. doing during this time period? In Europe, growth was greatly hindered by barriers in language, currencies, militaries, and historical alliances. The word fragmented is an understatement. And over in Japan, extremely high import barriers and other protectionist policies made doing business there really hard for anyone besides the uber-well-connected local owner-operators. But most handicapping of all for overseas economies, and I think this is something overlooked by history books in the U.S., especially those with an American exceptionalist undertone, World War II utterly devastated populations and decimated entire major municipalities across Europe and the Pacific Rim. And as if the physical destruction and war debt to the victor nations weren't enough of a crippling setback, I bet the psychological toll of living among death in a bombed-out city must have caused emotional pain passed down from one generation to the next. 
To use our arm wrestling metaphor again, it's as though you show up to the tournament in the prime of your health. You are glowing, you slept well, took your vitamins, and even meditated. But outside of your immediate control, yet very much to your advantage, an exogenous event. Every other major arm wrestler had fallen down a flight of stairs and broken their arms and necks. They still somehow participated in the tournament. However, given your not-shattered arms and neck, the glory of first place is all yours this year and yours for the next couple of tournaments. Following World War II, industrial research in America was simply head and shoulders above all industrial commons on planet Earth. 50 years of American economic dominance would follow World War II, right up to the 90s. And oh, the 90s. This was the tipping point. It was a demarcation for, among other things, the very definition of global competition in the American vernacular. Before the 90s, when an American company used the terminology global competition, it usually meant a Japanese or European company entering the domestic U.S. market. If you read a big American company's annual report from before the 90s, the market shares reported on were at most four geographies. USA, of course, the biggest contiguous market in the world. Europe, Japan, then ROW. ROW uh, are the initials for rest of world. No mention then of China, India, Brazil, UAE, or Russia. But as we know, in all forms of life, the only constant is change. 50 years after World War II, as countries around the world rebuilt themselves, the globe's economic structure shifted. New terminology emerged to describe major emerging economies like, and you might be familiar with these, the Asian tigers and BRIC countries. Asian tigers included Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Korea. BRIC, B-R-I-C, includes Brazil, Russia, and by extension, Eastern Europe, India, and China. This greatly widened the pool of competition for American workers from basically only five countries in Western Europe and Japan to way more people. On the plus side, this also massively increased the potential market space of customers for American companies to sell Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and our culture like Michael Jackson and Mariah Carey. Full disclosure, this time period shaped much of how I personally view the world. My dad worked for an American Fortune 100 company that decided to dramatically expand sales and R&D in Asia. My family moved as expats from California to Shanghai. We saw Shanghai pre-Starbucks, and when McDonald's had only three locations and a very limited menu, no McNuggets then. Immediately before my dad's employer's new facility was built, that spot was swampland. You'd never believe it now going to Shanghai, but in 1995, 
Pudong Xingqiu was hopping with little frogs. I even had a pet salamander who showed up in our garage one day. My dad's employer wasn't the only company in the 90s that looked to brick countries for advantages, both in labor cost and new customers. These companies knew they had to grow, and market share in the U.S. domestic economy had been already carved up and spoken for. The fastest-growing markets were the BRIC nations. According to a Goldman Sachs economics paper published in 2009, between 2000 and 2008, China alone contributed 16% of global growth. That was more than any single economy and even more than the entire Eurozone combined. Whereas previously the American industrial commons had the world's largest market size as a selling point, that shiny promise dimmed a little. Having a large contiguous market is essential to attracting industrial investment. Among other categories, mainland China was fast becoming the largest market for cars, cell phones, medical devices, and factory equipment. Perhaps the biggest game changer, though, is that the BRIC nation governments recognized the causational link that U.S. policymakers in the 18 and 1900s probably identified as well. Investment in education and R&D richly pay off with economic and social success. I would personally even go so far as to say this is the foundation of national security. After World War II, Germany moved to invest in basic research. Throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan strategically identified specific research tech capabilities to dominate through sheer excellence. Mainland China in the late 70s, after finally ending 10 years of a so-called cultural revolution, launched the state high-tech development program because the goal of the program was to free China from dependence on foreign technology. Strategic fields were targeted for support, including biotech, agricultural tech, advanced materials, telecom, and automation technology. By the late 90s, China's Science and Education Steering Group launched two ginormous initiatives to support scientific research. These were called Key Basic R&D Plan and Key Basic Research Project Plan. Not the most catchy names, but boy were these initiatives pivotal in world history. These plans still alive and updated every five years, are a roadmap for government funding of research and opportunities for the Chinese industrial commons. Specific categories named are biopharmaceuticals, the Internet of Things, next-generation mobile communications, smart assembly, biomass power, and fuel cell cars. One example of the policies success stories is related to crystalline polysilicon, which is used in solar cells. Basically, companies in China reduced their dependence on overseas suppliers. 
Right now, some of you on the business side of things might be feeling rather upset with the then U.S. policymakers. How could they have been so asleep at the wheel? To be fair to those policymakers, I will point out that they did respond when steel semiconductors and automobiles faced foreign competition. Unfortunately, the responses came in the form of import restrictions and bailouts. The root problems that were self-destructive in these industries, those were left unaddressed. For auto and steel, declining technical manufacturing competitiveness and deteriorating labor relations were elephants in the room that would not be meaningfully acknowledged. Worse, starting in 2003, we see a flattening of U.S. government support of basic scientific research. And while the allocation of funding dollars used to be 50-50 between basic and applied science, U.S. government funding for the applied sciences decreased to 40%. In case anyone is wondering why applied science is important to a robust industrial commons, Think of applied science as the bridge between pure science and commercialization. Not supporting this bridge decreases the odds that scientific discoveries made in the states would ultimately most benefit the American industrial commons. In episode 4, we discussed a whole list of such examples. Bye-bye light-emitting diodes and photovoltaic cells. But before we start pointing fingers at policymakers shortchanging science, let's take a peek at data from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis. Let's look at the business community. Professors Gary Passaro and Willie Shea, they analyzed the research and development spending of manufacturing companies in the largest 1,000 U.S. companies, between 1980 and 2010. They filtered out companies that did not report R&D spending. For each year, their sample population ranged between 300 to 500 companies. This represented a good amount of the total American company R&D spending. I have posted to Twitter the graph of their findings. I recommend you pause the podcast for a second to find the graph. Here in the graph, we see two striking trends, the first being a surge in payouts to shareholders relative to R&D and capital expenditures, whereas between 1980 and 2001, for every $1 these companies put towards research and development, which really represents potential future earnings, the company also paid out a dollar to shareholders. Starting in the 2000s, however, Companies decided not to spend so equally. They surged in payouts through stock buybacks and dividends. The second trend in the graph is the flattening of capital expenditures. For 20 years, the 90s through 2010, R&D spending increased by 186%. Payouts increased 341%. Stock buybacks alone during this period increased 777%. But CapEx, that increased by a measly 50%. Does that even cover replacing aging roofs and water heaters? 
Professors Pissarro and Shia referred to this time period, 1997 to 2007, as a lost decade for American companies. What makes it especially sad is that this lack of investment, in their words, quote, can in no way be attributable to a lack of capital, end quote. During that same 10-year period, companies paid out $2.1 trillion in dividends and share buybacks. Those were great paydays for executives whose compensation packages were tied to owning shares and pumping up the stock price. But for anyone not an investor or senior executive, it was a dark period that greatly damaged the American industrial commons. But Esther, not all CEOs are so short-sighted that they would sabotage the long-term health of their companies just to enrich themselves. Okay, I agree. And so do professors Passaro and Shia. They are calling BS on a fatally flawed, though maybe well-intentioned, managerial philosophy that asks this rhetorical question. Why invest in hard assets like manufacturing plants and equipment when today we can simply outsource from hundreds of low-cost suppliers overseas? It seems that the zeitgeist of the 30-40 years has been to offload heavy assets like buildings. All the buzz of being in a knowledge-based economy somehow implied to American management that manufacturing plants and equipment are not competitive advantages, but instead massive unnecessary drains on their financial statements. This is not supported by the numbers. As we see in the microprocessors industry, Intel, with its $70 billion in revenue and $250 billion in market cap, is one of the few remaining healthy stateside semiconductor companies. In 2010, Intel spent $5.5 billion on R&D. That same year, it spent almost the same amount, $5.2 billion, on CapEx, most of which went to manufacturing plants. Keep in mind that where the hard assets go, so do the hard skills, including engineering skills. Intel is an undisputable knowledge creator, and they lead the world's information revolution. Intel chooses to remain vertically integrated rather than to outsource their production. In episode 4, as we see in the modularity maturity matrix, for the semiconductor industry, keeping designers and manufacturers in close proximity makes a big difference in innovation and time to market. In many American businesses today, the mandate that purchasing departments receive is to rapidly shift their suppliers based on price arbitrage rather than committing to a supply base and together developing unique capabilities. Though the big C word, commitment, can frighten some people, the professors argue that it's a necessary step for producing efficiencies. I see it as a chicken and egg situation. Until one party decides to show commitment, be it through developing internal talent, co-investment into a supplier, 
or creating a joint venture, companies that constantly lay off and rehire employees, or the companies that continuously shop around for suppliers, these businesses find themselves with a reputation for being all talk and unreliable. This kind of reputation is a liability because the parties can't count on each other. When the going gets tough, and they always do, these companies look around, and if they are honest, they realize that they have set themselves up to be, at best, naked and vulnerable, and, at worst, self-righteous and desperately blaming others. Think about your own place of employment. You'd probably move mountains for a genuinely supportive employer or a ride-or-die devoted supply chain, but for those bosses, customers, and suppliers who remain touch-and-go, who implicitly threaten you with job security or cutting off sales orders, for the powers that be who do not make specialized commitments to your development, you might not be inclined to make specialized commitments to them either. You're not an idiot, after all. But doesn't it feel awful when, due to a systemic way of doing business, you can't truly count on other people? And likewise, you know, they can't count on you through and through. And so, at least for myself, at some level, I find myself holding back. Personally, I think this self-imposed limitation on connection at work is a modern-day travesty. It hurts us in the American industrial commons in more ways than just economic loss. Because without meaningful commitment somewhere in the mix, everyone loses out on what could have been. In a world in which even masters of the universe like Kobe Bryant can be taken in a microsecond, when we do have the opportunity to build organizations that bolster many for generations, doesn't that seem like a much more enriching and compelling way to live than defunding innovation dollars to provide dividends to a tiny group of so-called leaders? I guess it comes down to whether a person fundamentally feels that trusting others is not only a risk worth taking, but a reward in and of itself that makes life, with all its slings and arrows, worth living. And that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll return to chapter three of the book, The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack. Get in touch. My personal email is et55 at cornell.edu, or you can tweet me at tangy underscore turbo. That's T-A-N-G-Y underscore turbo. Thank you again to professors Gary Passaro and Willie Shea, co-authors of Producing Prosperity, Why America Needs a Manufacturing Renaissance. Thank you to Jack Stack, author of The Great Game of Business. Thank you to the many people at SRC, other ESOP companies, and policymakers who strengthen the industrial commons where they live by unlocking group intelligence through GGOB. Thank you to my family for encouraging me to connect with others on the pressing issues of our time. And finally, thanks to you, dear listener, for considering our shared future grounded in the appreciation of everyone. 
Signing off until next chapter, I'm Esther Tang. Remember that you count and you matter to me.